as soon as you have a strength conditioning coach who's a really good strength and conditioning coach, having to also manage a ton of data means you take away their time from doing probably what you really hired them to do and it makes them less effective in that space. So I would just say if I'm not speaking to someone in a physical preparation or a sports medicine department, if I'm speaking to an owner, a, a sporting director or something, I would say you want the people that you hire as practitioners being practitioners um, and you probably want people that do that to do that. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Data science and data scientists, with no fault of their own, have got a mystique around them. Members of staff sat in a darkened room, not speaking to anyone, is often a misconception of what data science is. So, what, what is data science? So, we get today's episode, we've got Johan Wint, who is head of performance data science at the Vancouver Whitecaps. So, where does data science fit into an organization? What do they actually do? So, we talk about subjective evaluations, technology evaluations, uh, maximizing data quality, and most importantly, how data science influences various aspects of the organization and how it helps other departments with their job and makes their jobs easier by providing good quality data. So a really interesting chat coming up. And one thing that I think is the biggest takeaway from this is how data science is used to evaluate the effectiveness of certain interventions from a sports science perspective and also from a strength and conditioning perspective. So a really interesting episode coming up with Johan. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction for recovery? Hytro has developed the world's first BFR wearable, unlocking the recovery benefits of BFR to support athletes. BFR is no longer just for one-on-one physio or rehab. Hytro allows teams to use this safe and scalable sports BFR device post-exercise to dramatically enhance recovery. So whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool to allow BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously, safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hydro.com or email Warren on warren at hydro.com to find out how Hydro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. Also sponsoring this episode is Fusion Sport. Smarterbase from Fusion Sport is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. 
Built on infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategy, process and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and custom-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. And with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand behind it. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. So without further ado, over to the episode with Johan. Johan Wint, welcome to the Pacing Performance Podcast. It's been a long time coming, but I'm delighted to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. It's a, it's a real pleasure. No, thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming on. Lots of back and forth on text, talking about our journey through fatherhood. You are far more experienced than me, but it's good to uh, it's good to get you on the podcast and have a little chat about what you've been doing at the at the football club, uh, what you've done in the past, and all that kind of good stuff. So, anyone that doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a brief bio? Yeah, happy to, Rob. I think first and first and foremost, you've already flagged that probably the most prominent parts of my life is is right now husband and father. So I I married my childhood sweetheart, and we're now currently still trying to figure out this parenthood thing with with a couple young ones. So if you let uh, me know, if you, if you do figure it out, please let me know because I'm in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> I, I can clearly describe it as a, a very fast moving target. So I don't if I if I figure it out, I'll text you, and by the next day it'll be different. So I I don't know how much help I can be. Um, but yeah, professionally, uh, I think my background would probably be described as, as varied and then pretty consistent with one foot in an, in an academic space and one foot in applied. So if we go like all the way back, uh, moved around a lot growing up, so like born in South Africa, moved away when I was three, uh, lived in Canada for a year, moved to New Zealand, lived in New Zealand for five years, became a rugby and cricket fan, um, then moved to the middle of nowhere, Northern Alberta um back in canada and then spent high school in the vancouver kind of lower mainland area uh and then undergrad went uh to a school here in in langley did exercise science kinesiology with my undergrad like a a ton of the the people you've had on the pod and then during that whole time tried to get as much applied experience as i could so i spent three years as kind of a strength conditioning intern during that time trying to get on the floor um got my cscs did the the strength and conditioning route uh, and then graduated through there, uh, tried to figure out what I was going to do next was either looking at academia, um, which would have been the master's approach or in an, uh, applied space of physio, um, an MD tried to go to med school, potentially my dad was a doc. So that was always, um, one of the discussions, um, spent like six months out of school trying to figure that out. Uh, and then professor Kiram Khan, um, from Bruckner and Khan's clinical sports medicine, um, British Journal of Sports Medicine, all the things that he was doing at the time, he gave a lecture to a bunch of physios and chiros in in Abbotsford, where I was at the time. And I was like, I'm going to do MD, PhD. This guy is literally both of those. He'll probably have some wisdom to share about what's a good idea. And that conversation sparked a, a kind of follow up. He just said, look, a master's degree is not a bad choice if you're going to go either of those routes. So why don't you send me some of your stuff? And, and that led to a master's degree with him. 
Um, he said, look, if you get a master's, it sets you up for med school, or if you want to do a PhD, do the master's first. So that was um, a really, really great conversation or really like pivoting point kind of in, in my career path. So I did the master's with him. It was in physical activity promotion. We worked with family practice physicians trying to convince them that, hey, uh, one of the most important things you could do in a 15-minute consultation is, is encourage your patients to be physically active. It has, in many instances, as much or, or more benefit than, than many of the pharmaceutical interventions, especially when there's nothing major or acute going on. Um, it's one of the major investments you can do for physical activity promotion. I thought it was super important um, as a topic. I didn't necessarily love it. I think my heart was still more in that sports space, but that was kind of the thesis. And then Again, tried to maintain that applied space. So I was the strength conditioning coach at a local college. Um, I proposed and then developed and taught a health and fitness class at the college where I was teaching as well. So I tried to do that. Uh, and then um, any random consulting thing I could do in this kind of sports science SNC space, I just pick up and say yes to far too many things. Uh, and then during that master's degree, I had this, this interesting hiatus. My, my wife and I traveled to South Africa. I got a research abroad scholarship and we had like five months living the life that we probably would have had had we never left South Africa in the first place. So I was at the University of Cape Town where my dad studied at the Sports Science Institute that Tim Noakes started. Um, my supervisor there at the time was Martin Schwellnus, who was just on his way out to, to move to Pretoria and Wayne Derman, the guys that my dad studied with. I, I spent time with all the other students, they have Noakes Hour. So on like Friday afternoon, Tim will sit down with all of the students and staff that want to go at the Sports Science Institute and just kind of outline his career journey and path for all the students that are there for the year. So we'll talk about the hyponatremia and the, the dehydration thing. He'll talk about central governor theory and all of the things that he's had there. Obviously now with the low carbohydrate diet approach and how he's handling all of those things. So it's this really interesting um, stint about like what life could have been, um, which was really, really cool. And then again, we we're kind of at that discussion kind of at the end of the the undergrad, like what do I do next? And we were trying to figure that out. And then while I was in South Africa, I found out I had PhD funding um, and Karim agreed to supervise a PhD. So again, we moved back, we went to Vancouver. I started the PhD, moved out of the physical activity promotion space and kind of moved into uh, the injury prevention space. So I was co-supervised Tim Gabbett and then Karim Khan was the other one there and then pretty soon after signing up i got embedded as a as an intern with the vancouver whitecaps so i spent the first two years of my phd with the club and kind of a sports science role on the ground each day collecting wellness measures on the pitch with the with catapult and trying to get a handle on how can you collect this information kind of support the team so i was getting the applied experience and then on the academic side there's them huge coffees Patrick Another coffee. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to run out. I think I drank too much before the podcast. <laughs> yes. I have a backup water, so we'll see how this it's goes. It's 6 a.m. It's 6 a.m. for Johan. <laughs> you just give me a context. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Carry on. No, of course. It was it was interesting. Started the PhD. It was another one of those conversations, again, with, with Karim, though. It was really helpful um, and kind of pivotal for where my career ended up going. So I definitely didn't see it going in, in this direction. But I think I was like a lot of graduate students, like you – and that conversation with Karim, a lot of students get involved in academia and they learn kind of the bare minimum enough statistics to publish a paper that they need. So in my master, I did that. I learned how to do like a McNamara test for pair comparisons so that I could publish my paper and then I forgot about it. I learned R and forgot all of it um, and lost the statistics stuff. 
Um, and then early in the PhD, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to get back into this coding stats thing. Uh, and talking with Karim, he's like, you could do that. And a lot of students do it. But look, academically, this can become essentially one of your superpowers that people often don't consider it. Like you can dive in, actually learn and develop this as a skill, not as a, like a chore you have to do. Um, and that actually led into me taking a subspecialization here at UBC in the measurement, evaluation, research methodology um, substream. So it's run by education and psychology. They have a really strong psychometrics department. Um, it led to conversations with Professor Bruno Zumbo, who's one of the world leaders now in unified validity theory. Um, he's a psychometrician, mathematician, really, really brilliant um, guy that ended up being on my PhD committee. So I learned about kind of the statistics and research methods in a field completely unrelated to sport, which actually I think has come to pay dividends for, for how I think about different sporting constructs because they're, that's where they live. In psychometrics, you're trying to quantify and capture things like emotional intelligence or even just general intelligence or empathy. It's like these things are constructs. We all think and identify that they exist, but you can't just strap on a GPS and get someone's empathy on the other end. You can't do that. So you have to develop things. And then you have to say, how confident are we that this survey we developed captures this thing that you can't have. And that, I think we end up doing that in sport. We'll probably get to that. But like learning about that space was, was really helpful during that PhD. And then trying to upskill myself thinking, hey, if the statistics thing is helpful, this coding thing might also be helpful to stop me from doing all this manual work. I think I've done what everyone does early in their careers in the sports science space of like, go into software, download CSV, all parameters, copy all of the rows, paste it into the other spreadsheet, manually clean the data, which is a disaster, hope for the best and publish up the thing. Like I, I did that and I was like, maybe there's a better, more efficient way to do this because this is a lot of time every day doing the same thing. So spent a lot of time just upscaling during the PhD, um, trying to become more efficient and, and helpful in that space. And then wasn't done two years into the PhD, two years into the Whitecaps, I was approached. I was at a conference in Belfast. Um, Dr. Dustin Nabhan at the time, he was with the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. He said, look, um, we have a job opening in the sports medicine department for a data analyst. We're trying to run and generate kind of this athlete monitoring program across and support national governing bodies across the country. Uh, we think you'd be a really good candidate. Would you be interested? And, had that conversation. One thing led to another. We packed up our bags like a month later and moved to Colorado Springs. So then I was working at, in, at the Olympic Training Center there, trying to develop and, and build out these things. Spent a lot of time building Qualtrics surveys for athlete wellness and athlete load across a ton of different sports. Had really good conversations there. Also had the privilege of working with Dave Taylor when I was there. I think we've talked about him in the past as well. So he's went on to Golden State Warriors now. Um, and then Bryce Murphy, who went on to the Orlando Magic, now IMG Academy. Uh, it was like this this very condensed period. We were only there. I was there 14 months in total. I was there crossing paths with Dave for about a year and Bryce for five months. But I, it was one of those, we worked together for like a year, maybe less, but we felt like we got three years of work accomplished. It was just this really fun office with like a lot of Tableau dashboards and probably a little bit too much espresso. Um, but it was it was a really good time there uh, and then tried to do the, the PhD, write up the dissertation on evenings and weekends. And we had a coffee shop that we'd go to each weekend to try and get through that. Um, and then, yeah, we were working there um, less than a year in and that kind of led to this current role. I got a call 
back from Dr. Ben Spore, who had taken over as the VP of performance here at the Vancouver Whitecaps. And um, at that time, they were having a bit of a revamping in terms of the performance strategy. Some staff had left to move to the Warriors and they were reshaping and kind of planning what that future for the performance side of the organization looked like. And Ben said, look, I've had discussions with senior leadership. I've pitched what I want this to look like. And one of the pillars that I want within the performance strategy at a the higher levels, I want to make sure that we have a, a data science department. There's things that we want to accomplish as an organization um, strategically, whether that be evaluate the effectiveness of all the things that we're doing to have data informed decision making to um, look at these things in a, in a long term process perspective, looking at what is the actual output, not just the the outcome on a, on a game to game basis. And he said, look, to, to do this, one of the things we're going to need is, is to have a data science department, a group dedicated to this, would you come back and kind of take it on and, and build it? And that's been now since the start of 2019, three and a half years and change in, in my current role. And yeah, again, I've managed to try and keep one foot in, in that academic space. I think now it's it's largely applied. I teach a couple courses here at UBC because I, I enjoy the teaching side. Um, we have an embedded PhD student, some partnerships with the university to try and maintain this kind of balance between a, a daily training environment here that we have to make sure that we deliver on a, each and every day at a high level, but also this research innovation space, which can be really enjoyable as long as it kind of can be used and supported in, in that the actual daily operational environment, if you can bring it back. So probably a long-winded answer, but that's the, the story to this point. No, it's interesting. I, I, I like, especially someone who has a non-conventional route into their position, um so yeah really interesting one thing that I, that when i was listening it was interesting what you were saying in terms of that foot in both camps and that's something that robin thorpe i don't know if you've come across robin worked at manchester united over in red bull now was very adamant how important that is for a sports scientist to have that research one foot in the research one foot in the applied so that both can can aid each other so I think definitely echoed echoed Robin's thoughts there. But move, moving on to the data, data science piece, data science uh, department within the organization, where does that fit? Where do you where does your influence start and finish, and how is it kind of sprawled into other areas that may not be what people imagine? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think it's a it's a great question. I think it's especially good just because like that doesn't look the same in every organization. Um, and I think one of the things before you can answer where data science does or should fit, I think it's helpful that you just step one level up to just even say, what do we mean when we say data science? Because it's weird. I think a lot of people know what you mean when you say like a, a deadlift or a squat or a physiotherapist, you have a pretty good sense. But I think it's helpful to say like, what do we mean when we say data scientists? Because again, I think in sport, it probably looks slightly different than it does at Google or Facebook, just from the nature of how many staff can work in this space, what the bandwidth is, what the scope of the organization is. So when when I would refer to data science, I, I would refer to um, the application of the data pipeline being collection, analysis and modeling, and then communication of that data to inform decision making. And that's what I would do. So you you might hear in a, in a really technical space, you'll probably differentiate like data science is the modeling, machine learning, um, model generation process. And then often you'll have a, a data analyst or even a data visualization expert for the communication side. And you would have a, a data engineer and a database architect to handle some of the collection and, and databasing of that information. So I think you see more specialization in other fields. I think in sport, 
um, at least in a lot of the circles that I've had discussions. To this point, it's a data science department's kind of responsible for all of those things. Like you have to figure out how to collect it, you have to figure out how to manage it, you have to figure out how to analyze and model when appropriate, and then communicate it to all of the stakeholders. You have to do all of it. Um, and in that case, then I think, yeah, I think my answer and a lot of my thinking, we, we were talking about Patrick Ward before the podcast. Um, and some of my, my own thinking came out of a conversation. I think it was 2017. I was in my PhD intern here at the time. Uh, it was the Sounders Sports Science Conference. And we were just having this, this chat over drinks after one of the sessions. Um, and at the time, I was musing over this conversation. I'd, I'd heard at the time, again, it was in the S&C space. So Dan John and it was describing this conversation he had and said, what's the, the role of a strength coach? It's really easy to quantify, help develop physical capacities like strength and power, aerobic capacity, et cetera. And then he said, but what's the impact of a strength coach? And that might be harder, right? Like you can influence the culture. You can, you can have these relationships that change the dynamic of an organization. You can help develop people and players, all of those things. The impact's a different thing than the role. And at the time I was trying to move more into this data science, sports science space. Patrick was a bit more experienced in and been in it longer. I said, what do you, what do you think the role and impact is of someone in a sports science space? Because again, it's harder to quantify these things at times. Um, and that conversation actually then led to two papers. So we, Patrick and I, with Tom Kempton, published this one about business intelligence saying, look, sports science, we, in that one, we were talking about sports science is literally the application of like data collection, data analysis, data communication, and then even using that as a decision audit after the fact to help inform decision-making in sport. It's same thing right now, business intelligence does in that space. Um, that's kind of what I define data science as as well. But the other part that came out is, is when we were having that discussion in terms of an, an IST, I think all of us are familiar with like an athlete-centered support team. There's athlete and then there's a sports medicine team. Maybe you're a physiotherapist and maybe you have a physical preparation coach or multiple. You have a sport nutrition staff. You have technical coaching staff. And you have a video analysis team. You have sports psychology, mental performance support. You have all of these different departments and supports and you often you put that around an athlete so i think the logical next step in most people's minds is oh it seems like a lot of people are getting these sports science or data science departments let's put them in and then we have another cog within this wheel of this athlete center support team and i like i i don't i think that happens a lot and i think it can't function it's not like that will never work i just don't think that's optimally where um data science if we think about that informing decision making pipeline i don't think that's the optimal fit i i put them as almost this glue that sits underneath and outside of all of those other practitioners that that end up being the decision makers when you have a physical preparation coach they design the periodization the plan loading the implementation of a lot of the on pitch and in gym fitness work the sports medicine team have to make decisions about return to play about what type of prevention strategies are we going to implement the coaching staff the scouting and recruitment which players are we going to sign like they're the decision makers and then our job and I think data science optimally fits then going to all of those practitioners and saying, look, how can we as a data science department make your job easier or more efficient? Like, what are the decisions you have to make? What information can I come and give to you that either make it easier to make that decision? Maybe it helps make it faster. Maybe it, it challenges or maybe it encourages what you're already doing. Just And sometimes it's literally like, can I set up a folder structure on our shared space just so your document storage is a bit more, um, a bit more organized and in line with the rest of what we're doing. And sometimes I I need that. (laughs) I'm desperate for that. (laughs) But, 
I think when you're in a generalist space, right? Like it, it, it isn't always like, hey, can we build the most sophisticated convolutional neural network and support? Like that's not where we spend the majority of our time. And, and I think that's, that's a really healthy space just to be a, one step below. We wrote an editorial in BJSM, a few of us um, that have kind of been in the space. And that's, I think, organizationally where I think it's optimal for data science and sports to sit. Um, I know people will have different perspectives. It's how we sit here. And that's been a, yeah, I think it's been really nice to transition into a role where that is realized. And yeah, again, I, I could go on. I'm going to I think if I can take a small aside, this this only works. So I think it's optimal, but the caveat is you you can't do it if the organization isn't set up for that to work, right? So, as a data science department within a structure like that, I'm not the primary decision maker almost in any realm, right? So what that means is I can have this really like I'd say. Influential is the wrong word. I can have this really broad scoping role, which I really enjoy of being almost like this glue between multiple departments to have these discussions across the board and understand what's going on and try and help as many people as I can. And that extends again within each department. But if, if you have an organization that has a bunch of people that just think they have all of the answers already, and if they're instead of like encouraged to look at other sources of information or want to take information and data on board, like the data science department becomes completely helpless. It's, it's useless to spend resources and time. And then you have a frustrated group of people in the data science space trying to build dashboards or reports or something. And a bunch of decision makers are like, why is this guy in the room? I already know what I'm doing. So why is he here? And then that, that breaks down. So you could have the perfect organizational structure if you don't have a culture in place and a structure in place. And if you don't hire the people that are willing to take that information on board, then that, it doesn't work. It'll just implode. And I think that that can happen as well. It's, so it's not just organizational structure. I think it's it's culture. And I'm, I'm really fortunate here at the club. That's when I talked back to when they revamped what the performance department looked like, kind of when Ben took over as, as VP. And just within the culture, I think I can I can list people within every one of those departments that have that have been brilliant to work. With. So like in the physical preparation space, John Poley and I have worked together um, now since my first joined, he's been here even before that so he's been brilliant as a physical preparation coach um he's he's brilliant to work with and that's been a really great experience you'll know both stephen pledger and tom ryan the absolutely the uk invasion has begun so they, they've come over and they've again we we bring on really quality people that are willing to take that type of information on board and we can have these really helpful discussions about how can i make their jobs um a little bit easier and they've been brilliant to have so that's been great chris franks um, James Gardner's joined as, as an AT, Jose Jimenez on the sports medicine side. Again, each of these departments has these practitioners that are great practitioners, but also really good people that are like, you can have these conversations with our, our director of scouting spent time working at what's considered the, one of the most data driven football clubs in Brentford FC Michelin owned by Matthew Benham, a, a, a sports gambler turned owner. Um, obviously takes a lot of data on board. And then he moved from there into working directly with StatsBomb, one of the elite data providers in sport, right? And now he's come on. So you can guess he's he's very open and comfortable taking data on board to make decisions. When we look at, look at players, we have a technical staff. Not every coach is the type of coach that's going to say, hey, what do 
the data have to say about this performance, about this player, about these things. And we have a group of technical staff that are willing to have those discussions that we can be in a room and just have these these chats about, hey, where are we? What are we doing? How can we improve? Where do we um, see that we've grown? And what can we say both positively and negatively and, and translate that where necessary to other members of staff or to the players? And those those conversations don't happen in every organization. We work incredibly closely with like our video analysis team with with Luke and Drew. And I think from a data viz perspective, we'll probably get there in this conversation. But like, like people always say like a, a picture is worth a thousand words kind of thing. And, and I was just like the other day thinking like a, a video in some cases is worth like a thousand dashboards. Like you could take the most sophisticated model, you could build a thousand dashboards to show, but then when you want to translate that sometimes to a, a player or to a coach, you can show one video example of saying, we want to do this more. Um, and that's going to be way better than like my most sophisticated Tableau visual um, in many of those cases. But that again only happens if you work with the other practitioners and the staff that are one going to help you create that content and translate that across to the other practitioners or to the players. Um, and I think that's the other thing from the structure. I know it's a bit of an aside here on that space, but I, I think in that structure, if you go and you make data science this supporting structure with all of the other practitioners, it it actually does remove us one step from an athlete, right? So if now I help make John Poley's life easier or Luke's life easier or our coaching staff, their life easier, um, and if I'm helping all of them, what it means is often, I think the information that we provide is most effectively translated by the person that usually works in that avenue with an athlete. So John Poley can communicate, hey, here is where your loading is at. Here's why we think you should come on for 60 minutes this next game because we're in this congested schedule. We think you'll play 60, then you'll be ready on the weekend. Hey, we're going to implement this new um, aerobic capacity training on top of what you're doing because, hey, we've identified this on your screening or this on your testing, or we've looked at your loading over time and here's where here's why we're making this decision. So I might help build out the dashboard or report that identify those things. But I also need to be comfortable that I'm, it probably means more to the athlete coming from John Poli. And when the coaches say, hey, we want you to do this behavior more, I might have some information that helps guide the decision to say, hey, we want to encourage this action or this type of play. It means more when a coach like Ricardo Clark, who's played in the World Cup, goes to the player and says, hey, you're doing this, maybe you want to do this more um, than having a data science guy come and be like, you know what I found, let me pull out my dashboard and talk about this. It's, it's, it's a different role. And sometimes like having come out of the strength and conditioning realm where you're on the floor, you have these discussions every single day with the athlete. I'll have less interaction with athletes in this structure than I have in the past. And that's also just personally some of the things that you need to, to work through and kind of, kind of work with. But is, is that sometimes a criticism of this type of structure i think i think it can be because okay. i think ryan curtis had that discussion with you as well because the more embedded you are the more you're there with the athletes like the more you're on the floor the more likely when you do have something you want to communicate like the more likely they are to listen right that that that's a that's going to happen you like ryan mentioned you you're more likely to see some of the the challenges the hiccups the pain points especially on, let's say, the physical preparation, sports medicine side, if you're in that room and on the floor every single day. Um, I think the way we try and balance that is like we have 
uh, a sports scientist we've hired, Luke Petty. Um, he's in his PhD here at UBC. He has extensive experience um, both as like a national level swimmer, but also now helping in kind of the sports science support staff space and, and swimming. Now he's moved over into the, the football realm. So he he's within our data science department, but he's he's our sports scientist and he's on the ground with the athletes every single day. So what we do then if within that structure is Luke is primarily our conduit with our sports medicine staff and our physical preparation staff. So we as a department spread all the way through, but to make that as efficient as we can, like Luke then is on the floor communicating every single day. So if one of us as a data science department needs to help um, with force plates or warmups, like he, he's kind of first line there. So he's going to spend the most time with the athletes. So he'll rep the data science department. It's not always Luke. So we've just, this past week, we've rolled into academy testing. So there's whatever 80 academy athletes that have arrived. We need to run them through a ton of testing. So all three of the data science department alongside Tom Ryan are there doing whatever we need to, to make the testing function. We're willing to do that, but I think, we try and have representation in each department. So Luke's there in the sports medicine space and in the physical preparation space. He's on pitch. He's in the weight room. He's doing all of those things. But we also, again, in that structure, don't just live in that space. We also have to help with the coaching staff and with opposition analysis, with scouting and recruitment. So in that case, we also have Alexander Hinson, who's a more brilliant and better data scientist than I will ever be. We hired him after he finished a master's in economics and then he finished a master's in data science. During that time, he got to do a capstone project with us. It was a brilliant eight-week time. Um, he was a member of a group that worked with us and he was one of those guys that you spend eight weeks with. And like, if we can get him as part of the organization, that'll be a big win for us. So we, we, we tugged and we pulled and we got him here and he's been, he's been a great addition. But there, as our senior data scientist now, he spends more of his time really closely with our coaching staff, with our video analysis team on opposition scouting. He spends more time building some of our models off event or tracking data or doing some of the database architecture. He spends more time doing those things and being our primary conduit down other avenues. And then I'll have the same, like communicate in certain avenues more so than others to try and identify. But I think back to your point, is it a criticism? I think if you were completely removed, so we do sit in a different office a lot of the time when we plug away, if we only sat in this room and we never got out, we never spoke to the other practitioners, it's really hard to have positive relationships and ask the questions about how we can make their life easier if they don't know who we are and we don't experience any of those things. So I think it's it's a balanced point that you have to hit. We've tried our best to do that with our structure, but I think it's a moving target, kind of like like parenthood as well. <laughs> now, now I understand. <laughs> So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Johan, hope you enjoyed part one. So we have a little chat around data visualization in part two. Some principles that Johan, the team at the Whitecaps live by, which is not ugly and efficient. What that actually means, how they live by it, and examples how you can improve your data visualization as well. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. 
The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. A mega wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit tantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the episode with Johan. So there'll be many people out there, probably more people out there who are one-man bands, who are one-man band plus an intern versus the data science department. So just to finish off this little area that we're, we're, we're chatting in regarding data science, what would be the... What would be your recommendations for those people to upskill not only for now but to future-proof themselves with new technology the amount of data that's been processed generated and has to be analyzed visualized cleaned all that kind of stuff what would be your recommendations for those people to take on as a i suppose the in-situ default data scientist because there's there's only one there what would be your recommendations I think it's a. I think it's it's a really important thing to consider because I think that is the case in many many organizations. The the real quick caveat I think is organizationally I don't think it's optimal because as soon as you have a strength conditioning coach who's a really good strength and conditioning coach, having to also manage a ton of data means you take away their time from doing probably what you really hired them to do, and it makes them less effective in that space. So I would just say. If, I'm not speaking to someone in a physical preparation or a sports medicine department. If I'm speaking to an owner, a, a sporting director or something, I would say you want the people that you hire as practitioners being practitioners. Um, and you probably want people that do that to do that. Um, but that's an organizational thing. It's not the reality. Sometimes it's budget. Sometimes it's just organizational constraints. So you, you do run into this, this avenue. And then I think to speak to the practitioners that have to do what they're great at on the floor with the athletes on the pitch, whatever that might be. And then also have to have some data skills, or let's say if almost like myself, if you're in a practitioner role and you want to gain those skills and say, I actually want to do more of this in the future. Um, I think what I would, what I would say is I'd come back to that description of data science being that full pipeline. So I think if you Google, like what is data science or like upskilling in data science, you're really quickly going to get into like a coding course in Python about machine learning. 
which is fine. Like you can learn that and understand what a random forest does or it's like decision tree, all this, you can do that. But I think in sport, your day-to-day isn't just sitting back and, and fitting models. It's actually managing data from its onset to its conclusion where you're trying to inform some decision-making. And often the modeling doesn't necessarily have to be as sophisticated as what it might be. Um, there's going to be a time and space for that. So I would say if you want to upskill in that space, I think the most helpful thing that I have found and the thing that I've often recommended when people ask that question is find projects. It can either be at your work or it could even be personal projects. Like if you have a, a Fitbit or uh, some wearable technology, even that you have on your own, think about what do I want to know about whatever my own training or what do I want to know about the athletes that I currently work with and like build out something like imagine what it would look like at the end and then try and figure out a way to collect the data maybe for the first time that is going to be a download csv but when you do it you might find that the spreadsheet's a mess that you have six header rows that things are out of place and you have to change a bunch of stuff in order to even get it into another platform and then when you do that maybe you're like oh i need to create a new variable ryan curtis talked about that like oh i i have my speed or velocity, like maybe I want to do force velocity profiling. I need to create some other variable. Maybe I need to estimate VO2 max from a 3015 result. I have these 3015s or whatever, and I want to get someone VO2 max. So you have to create the equation to get there. Maybe you have to do some sort of analysis, create new variables, describe what that is in some basic summary statistics. And then you have to build the visualization, a dashboard or a report or whatever that is to communicate that at the end. And I think if you if you break apart your learning into like trying to solve real world problems, um, whether they be for yourself or for the organization, then I think you encounter and learn to problem solve like you actually do in sport because it's it can be one less motivating to just open up this online coding course from scratch and just learn how to type print hello world into the coding platform and then go through all of the syntax. That's not really how we learn on the ground either. It's a lot of time like, I need to solve this problem. So how do I do it? Right? So this one won't be solved by Excel. Maybe a, a survey that has a, is a powerful enough platform would be a great way to collect this data. What we encountered here is some of the stuff we wanted to collect is a bit too sophisticated. So a, a survey monkey and a Qualtrics doesn't have what we need. So then we have to learn how to build apps because then we can build it more to what we need it to be. So then you learn how to do it. And you learn it because you're solving a problem, not because you're like, ooh, I need to learn how to build a, a web application and I'm going to spend 10 hours doing it. So I, I think when I think about learning, if you think about those actual project oriented, what does look, this look like in the real world? I think you start to learn and develop skill sets along the way that will serve you well in the future. That's kind of the big things. And again, it's across that pipeline. Ryan Curtis, there's a lot of people the Jose Fernandez tweet, the minimum required yeah. skills. Sure, if you want the list. I can't reference I'll, that again. It's just, it comes up every, I want to get it in every week. <laughs> I'll defer to the list. There's a list. If you want the list. I, I often go to like, look, find a problem, try and solve it um, with data. Um, and then like, like last thing, this just a last point on this. If you're a one man show and you're in charge of like developing all the programming and loading and gym work and all of those things. And then data is laid on top. Like, I think it's just a really important thing to come back to. It's a similar question I asked with technology. Like, let's pretend you did have all of the data and you, you do all of the work to put it into Excel and then you build the whatever report. 
Like what in your practice as a physical prep or a strength conditioning coach is going to change if you have all of that data? Like it's nice to have sometimes, but if you at the end of the day are like, I could dump 10 hours a week into trying to collect all of this and you come to the conclusion that like, I'll still program this way. Like this is still going to be a maintenance block. This will still be a build block. I'm still going to emphasize power and speed here. And then I'm going to emphasize aerobic capacity over here. If you say you're unlikely to change most of your operational things, regardless of that 10 hours of data spent, I think it's worth asking like, yes, it would be great to have all of the data, but maybe it's not that important that I need to spend 10 hours away from other things I could be doing either at work or personally to say like, it's not worth it at this point. And then to have that conversation with the leaders of the organization, like, I think it would be helpful to have someone to manage this, but I can't do it because I've been hired to do this and I'm, I'm willing to do this, but I can't do all of the other job as well. And I think that's a space people have to consider and ask um, before they just jump headlong in. Of course. One thing that I wrote down pretty early when we, when we started talking was about Ben, when you had that initial chat with Ben was for for this department and for you to evaluate the f- effectiveness of what we do and i think that is a really interesting point a- across many conversations that i've had ju- not justifying what we do but trying to understand how we uh, do exactly that like look at the effectiveness of, of a strength and conditioning coach or a sports scientist and that feeds many other conversations around salary around working conditions around staffing all that kind of stuff so just bringing that back into the frame from that that initial comment how do you monitor manage the effectiveness of the interventions that are going on all over the ecosystem within the performance department i think that's yeah if if there's a quote about our performance strategy i think that that integrates there's probably two or three to come up but like our ability or our desire to do that um, drives so much of what we try and do as a department to say like, yeah, why, why do we build these apps to collect information about like what we're doing in sessions, about the time spent with athletes doing different modalities? Or why do we um, have technology that, that captures this stuff? Or why do we use in-match data the way that we do? And, and often it comes back to this idea, right? Like, there's so many things that we do in sport. If you think about that IST, there's things that we're going to do to try and encourage the, the right mentality of our athletes. There's things that we do from a physical preparation and, and a prevention standpoint. So for every one of the interventions that we think about, right, like with, there's there's some outcome we're trying to change. So within within the way that we frame this at our, our performance strategy, we consider the, the 90 minutes on the pitch, how we play is is ultimately what we mean by performance, right? It, it doesn't mean what someone gets on any test score or some isolated um, individual player incident. It's like, how does our team perform for 90 minutes on the pitch or over the course of the year? Like, that's what we mean, and that's what we're trying to optimize. Um, we understand that that is essentially this coming together of a cohesive 11 players on the pitch that all interact at once. So it's, it can be really challenging to do. We can talk about how that team performs. And then... We can think about each athlete then has this kind of profile that we think about into like a physical, technical, tactical, and mental domains of how this athlete's coming into that team environment. And we think within each of those domains, there's characteristics or constructs that we 
we value, right? So if you think about the physical bucket, like an athlete's going to come into that with a given aerobic capacity, an anaerobic power, a top speed that they can run, an acceleration, change of direction, deceleration ability. There's all these things, they're constructs within a, within a physical domain. And we think that we have interventions that we can change those things. Again, it, it doesn't help to change just this isolated physical construct for the sake of the physical construct. We have to identify that that physical construct is important for this player because what they're expected to do within our overall team strategy is to do X. During the 90 minutes, our team strategy, our game model demands this player do this in this position. So therefore, this player is unable to do it because maybe they are simply not fast enough to recover in defensive transition, or this player simply isn't fit enough to play 90 minutes in this position because the demands within our game model are, are really demanding. Um, so then you identify what the construct is that you want to change, and then you develop the intervention. So in some cases, that might be a, a top speed. In some cases, it might be an aerobic capacity. In some cases, it might not be a physical thing at all. It might be that this player needs additional technical training because this action is missing from their game. So we might they might be in the right position. They might do the right thing. They might be fit enough to do that for 180 minutes consecutive. But hey, when we get to this moment, they are unable to consistently perform this action. So what they need is, is a dedicated technical work. Again, the reason they need that is because in our game model at the team level, that's what it requires. So that's really what the performance strategy is is about is trying to understand all the way from saying, are we adhering to the principles of play? Um, what does that principle of play demand from each of the positions? Then what are the different constructs that we think in each bucket that relate to the athlete's ability to do that on pitch? And then we have to think one step lower, okay, can we, can we intervene and change these things? Like an aerobic capacity is a more malleable thing than a max velocity, especially in a short-term thing. It's just easier to change. Um, and they're same thing on the technical or on the tactical components. Like these things might be really easy to change and they might take a little bit of time. They might be harder to change and take longer to get to. But if you're a data science department, you have to be able to say, did we intervene? How much did we intervene? And what measure, if any, do we have to latch onto this construct um, to say, did this change? Like, did this get better? Because first you have to say like, did they get fitter? Did they get faster? Did they get better at crossing? Did they get better at this thing? And then you can ask, okay, now are they doing that in a game at speed with defensive pressure? And is that translating to our team being better? And, and that's a fascinating process. It's really fun to talk theoretically, but obviously that it takes a long time to build the ability to do that both at like a really dis discrete level and at the macro scale. So that's, it's a challenge and it's, everything from the small component parts all the way to the, the integrated piece. I don't think we're there yet. I think that we, we have nice incidents and nice examples that we can, we can highlight along the way and we're getting in that direction. But a lot of, as you can imagine, the first couple years in setting up a data science department, it was like, do we have data from the matches that we can use to say whether a player is or isn't doing this? Um, what's good for this and what's necessary? And, oh, we don't have information about this. So what do we need to do to get it? And then once you start building up components that kind of get to both the intervention and the performance, you can start to answer those questions down the line to say, hey, we've really consistently been successful here. And hey, this seems to be a bit more challenging to, to get after and change. Really interesting point. I'm going to use deceleration 
as an example. <laughs> so we we identify that deceleration is an issue because it's linked to this imaginary athlete's uh, change direction ability that we've identified in game. That a coach that's coming from a coach. Not that that probably would, but it has this time. So we go okay. We need to measure it. So we measure it with a um, a suitable deceleration test. We isolate it. We go, okay, this person is here on the scale compared to the rest of the team. That's fine. but So we can put a number on that. But the difficulty then comes to go, have we improved it in game? And we can count them. And we can say, oh, they're doing more than they have done. Their deceleration intensity is higher based on this number and, and whatever. We can link that back to video. But then how do we still bring these physical constructs into the game and go, that's got better? We can always look at the training and, and the testing and say it's got better. But how are you going about answering that question? Okay, that's got better. But did it? does it actually now happen in game? And... I don't want to set you down the path that you don't want to go in terms of saying things that you're doing at the club that you maybe don't want to talk about. But what is that process to get there? And yeah, how do you go? How do you go about doing that? Did you come back to subjective? Does it come back all the way to a subjective? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really nice segue into something that I know we're probably going to get into on that subjective space. So I think for deceleration, let's stay on your example. Right. So when you say like we've changed objectively this this like the set environment deceleration capacity of this athlete, we, we've identified that, hey, um, actually, they're middle of the road, their deceleration ability. Maybe we've even worked on it, brought it to average. So they're they're an average player within our environment for for deceleration capacity. The question becomes in a match. So there's two ways that you consider, and we'd probably want to look at both. One is that deceleration test might measure their max deceleration ability when they're fresh, fit, whatever, in a closed environment. It could be that in a match, um, their fatigue level is actually the limiting factor. So you'd actually want to combine that with some other measures of, of different fitness or different capacity to say, actually, when we use the tracking or the GPS data, it seems like their deceleration intensity does decrease and drop throughout a match like that is one theoretical scenario that maybe it they don't decelerate properly but the reason they don't decelerate properly is actually some other physical limitation and that being fitness is, is one key marker but the other question could be the coach is saying this this athlete isn't decelerating properly and it's not actually their deceleration ability it's something around their tactical awareness of knowing when to decelerate or in this moment, they're just they're getting distracted by the fact that someone else is making a run in behind them and there's a player with the ball that they're closing down and they're just like, it's not a physical deficiency, it's a tactical deficiency, in which case that gets harder. So some of these constructs are really nice and easy. The max velocity one minus the noisy tracking or GPS data is it's nice. Everyone understands what you mean when you say, hey, this player is really fast at the top end speed and this player is slow. Like we get that. Is this player effective pressing, like closing down opponents when they're pressing to guide the shape of play or something like that as a construct is much more challenging to answer. And that type of construct is where I think the subjective measures become brilliant because you, you, you think, and I think we all intuitively know that a really experienced, wise coach and a practitioner, when they see something, they can say, hey, that was a really good 
well-executed performance, and that was that was worse. And then from a data science department, the fascinating question that I have is like, that's awesome. I believe that there's absolute gold in that brain when you evaluate and you assess a performance. Now, I want that. Like, that needs to be in our database so that I can use that for something. Like, I don't just want it to be a comment that's made in a locker room. I want that to be something that we can use as information. Um, and that's that's the big discussion, the road about subjective measures, which, yeah, if you want to, you can unpack that. But that's, for us, it's a fascinating topic that I think is, is still wide open. Yeah, and I think it is, and it links into so many things. I mean, I had a chat last night with with three guys uh, on a roundtable with regards to agility, and it was exactly that, kind of educated in the, in the science with the science head. Okay, we want to change something, so first we have to test it. But then when it comes back to the training, it becomes so chaotic and, and try to encourage coaches to be happy in this chaotic space. So then we go, well, how how do we link that testing them testing numbers into this chaos that we're seeing in the training environment because we've made it that way because it links to the game because the game is also chaotic so this like uncomfortableness and I, I was actually last night when we were talking fighting in my brain to go like loosen up it doesn't have to be this stiff like environment that we test and we intervention and then retest and 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 the kind of comb to comb drill versus the chaotic activity. So I find this this messy space really interesting. And I think as as pro coaches get and like people like yourself get more experienced, they become more comfortable in this messy zone. Yeah, I I think that it's in between. It's it's kind of back to that where you kind of alluded to it earlier. It's like what's the breaking point for that athlete when you get to this acceleration change of direction? The first one is like, hey, they're not doing this in a game. The first question, this kind of gets back to like how we evaluate these interventions, you, you have to figure out what the intervention point is. So if they, if they can't decelerate or change direction around a cone that they know the route, it's going to be, be that much harder to do it dynamically with an uncontrolled environment, with pressure, with some contact. It's going to be that much harder. So first you have to say, hey, they're, are they capable of doing it in this? And then are they capable of doing it in... in training or with some constraint where you introduce an opponent or you add some uncontrolled thing and then you get into, hey, are they doing this effectively in game? But then you run into the, hey, that's a lot harder to quantify than when they were just with the cones and you had the time. Um, so you have the spectrum from easy to quantify to like actually the relevant point when you get to the match. So that's, yeah, there's, there's some gray in there, but I think it's important to go through those steps because it I think if you only evaluate, let's say we have the perfect subjective measure and you know exactly like, oh, this player is our worst player at decelerating when they close out opponents in a match. It's helpful, but if you want to intervene, you have to know why that is. Like, why are they not able to close down opponents? And your intervention point could probably be more efficient if you identify that limiting step and then attack that rather than just having them practice closing out a bunch of opponents every time at the session. Like there's a way to do it, but if it's if it's an overall capacity fitness thing, just having them do closeups might not be the most efficient way to change their fitness level. If it's a if it's an awareness issue, maybe you have to introduce those game moments. If it's a again a deceleration capacity, maybe you want to do some other dedicated. Maybe it's literally that they just need to get stronger, and then the time that they spend closing down opponents could actually be better spent developing a bit more of a robust 
physical base in a weight room setting that then they can translate. But if you only assess the in-match performance, you, it's hard to get to what the rate limiting step is that then would inform what your intervention could be. So it's challenging assessing the game performance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, w- I want to continue down this track because I think it's an interesting one. And I'm just thinking of examples using the deceleration. So I'm a defender. I'm Attackers coming towards me. I want to go meet them. But a coach identifies that I'm not able to slow down quick and get there quick enough and slow down quick enough to be in a relevant or optimal position to be able to defend that attacker. But for me to do that, that may be nothing to do with my ability to get there quick and slow down. That may be something mentally from my point of view to think I don't want to go as quick as possible because I think that person's quicker than me. Therefore, I'm going to hold back to give myself more time to prepare body position, etc., so that person doesn't whip past me. But how do we get into a position where we are subjectively evaluating something like that so we can go, yes, it's improving on the pitch. No, it's not improving on the pitch. Yes, and, and to even follow up on that, it might be that literally within the game model, your coach has communicated that in this scenario, you do not go and press the attacker. In those moments, right? So you just like, that is a different, that's a different construct you're trying to get to. And I think now we're getting into the space where I think having some subjective ability to evaluate and capture becomes absolutely vital because it, it's, it's a lot easier to get to some constructs. But if I say, hey, is this defender adhering to our game model more than they were before? Right now, I would venture a guess, as much as we try with event or tracking or et cetera data to try and get to these things, to probably the most reliable is to ask the manager, ask some of the coaching staff in this game, how well did this player adhere to the principles or use video to say in this example, did they or did they not do what they were supposed to and use that. Um, so, so from a data science perspective, sorry to interrupt Jan, sorry, sorry to interrupt. From a data science perspective, what are you doing to help get that information out of the coach's head? And like you say, the analogy that you, you, you described put it into our database. Yeah, 100%. So that that's really the impetus behind, we, we just published, we have a, a PhD student right now at the club, Keith Hamilton. He's a PhD student with uh, Dr. David Cox, who's um, an unbelievable uh, sports psychologist. He's, he's had a very prolific career. He, we, we're very fortunate to have him as, as part of our performance staff here. Um, so he's applied brilliant academic grade. He, he has a student, Keith Hamilton, and his PhD is really trying to get into this space. And we started with this paper we just released to say, look, subjective evaluations, I think, one, are everywhere in sport. We do this when we select a starting lineup. We do this when we announce an MVP award. We do it at the end of every academy season when we say, okay, this player is going to come back next year and this player isn't. Those decisions are based on the, like, the collection of information in the brains of our practitioners as they make decisions. And we believe that there's the coach's eye. We believe that someone that's really experienced has the capability of doing it. Um, and they're just done all the time. It's on every radio or every talk show. It's like this player is awesome and this player is terrible. What that is, is it's a subjective evaluation based on what you've seen as you assign this categorical rating of terrible or excellent or average to a player. Um, now, I would liken this back to like my time during my PhD was sitting in 
like psychometrics classes as they talk about how do we develop stuff to capture empathy, emotional intelligence, general intelligence, etc. And um, how do we know what we're collecting is getting to this construct that you can't really measure. And like tactical adherence is really hard or you get into this, these spaces of like, hey, is this player a good teammate or is this like you get to these things that are harder to measure. And that's what I would liken it to. And I, I would say, like, I think the jury is up. So when I say there's there's moments where a survey doesn't do it or an Excel workbook doesn't do it, and we, we've tried to develop things in-house that can capture, I don't, I don't think we know yet what's best practice. What I would say is I've seen... I've seen surveys ruin subjective evaluation. I We don't yet in sport have what a gold standard, this is what it should look like. So like, for example, I've seen before, hey, can you rate this player's performance in this given match or in this given competition? Did they perform better than expectation, at expectation, worse than expectation? And this was collected for a long period of time um, in a given environment. And essentially then what you would have is you'd have some of the best players would end up over the course of the year with a degrading performance and they would be like kind of like your bottom third of performers. And then you go in and be like, I thought this was your best player. And they would say, well, he was, but like as because they're so good, the expectations rise and they continue rising over the course of the year. So in a given period of time or a given match, their performance is further below the moving bar that is the expectations placed on them. And you might have an average player that performs above expectation. But if you were using that at the end of the year to say, okay, which players stay, which players go, which players should start, it you're not capturing the construct you're interested in, which is which of the players performed the best. That's, it. That's where you're trying to get to, but the, the survey or the question is not capturing. It's capturing something else, which might be relevant, but it's this construed ratio of coaches evaluation with player performance that gets you something else um you see this this is in the in the athlete self-report space as well right so aaron coots has been on you've had guys talk about like use the the scales that have some validity related evidence versus scales you create on your own and i have you've seen like sometimes one is good and five is good bad and then sometimes five is bad and one is good or whatever and vice versa sometimes it's a one to ten anchor sometimes it's a zero to seven sometimes it's this sometimes it's that and, and I've seen data sets before where all of a sudden an athlete goes from like being fantastic to being terrible. And then you're like, what's going on on that day? And then you either talk to them or you look in the comment box and they're like, oh, no, I've been misinterpreting this scale completely since I started recording data. You're like, well, that's it's gone now. Um, so I, I've seen many examples of like, hey, here's subjective evaluations. And because of the way that the survey or the scale or the question was designed, You've lost the ability to capture what you're trying to get to. Um, the question that we're after is how do you develop the survey, the scale in a way that does capture it? And that's what we're working on at the club. I think the jury's out. I think we can learn a lot from the psychometric space. We're partnering with Bruno, um, was one of the authors on that paper that we published in the Journal of Elite Sport Performance just now to try and at least get a framework to think about it because there, there's actually a lot of similarities with objective data when you think about how data is generated and how it can actually help inform an inference there's a lot of crossover um but what we have and i think we said this in the paper was in the objective space you have this data collection process right the data is generated we run a sprint 
we do a fitness test, right? The athlete runs on a treadmill, right? To then capture that information. It's the calibration side, which case is like, is the, is the treadmill calibrated? Does the mask fit on the mouth? What is, are we doing the Bruce protocol or something else? And we've spent so much time in exercise science talking about the calibration of objective tests. Then there's the inference, which I think you can't forget. And that's a, a lot of the unified validity theory, psychometrics talking, which is another giant conversation. We'll leave that. Then you have to make an inference. This VO2 max for this player is from this very calibrated bike, whatever, 52. Then you have to make an inference. This player is, isn't fit enough, needs work. We're going to use that to do something. It's not just about the score. It's about what you're trying to do with it. And then you make an inference. The subjective thing is the same thing, right? So you, you watch a game, back to your example, the defender does or does not close out on the attacking play. Then maybe you have this, whatever, this survey that asks the coach, in this environment, how effective was this defender at doing what you've asked? Data is then captured in that survey, in that question, in that whatever. That's the calibration. And then there's an inference. We're going to compare that with all the other times the defender did or didn't or was in the situation and say they are getting better or are not getting better. In the sports science space, we've spent like so much time calibrating bikes and building protocols, developing field tests and lab tests and saying, what are all the other things that go into calibrating so we can trust this test? And then in the subjective space, we skip that for the most part. It's like stuff is stuff happens. People play games. We look at their performance and then there's a lot of hot takes like this player is terrible. They're getting worse every game or this player is great. Um, that was a brilliant performance. This was above average. Um, and often we don't capture. And when we capture it, even in the academic literature, there's there's almost no scales that have had dedicated effort to saying, does this scale itself have any evidence related to its ability to capture someone's technical or tactical performance? And that's the space we're living in now. It's like, we're trying to borrow best practices from psychometrics, having these discussions and saying, what do we know from survey design and scale design and these things that we can apply here? But we, I think best practices is, is up for discussion, up for debate, which makes it a really exciting space. But that's how we, at least how we try and answer the question as we build tools. I think it's fascinating. I think it's a fascinating area and something that just the more you talk about it, the more you kind of get level down, level down, level down. Then I just go, my mind just goes, oh no, yeah. this, is just so, this is so deep. But no, tackling it. So good work, good work. I've kept you for an hour already, but we still have one more, I think, important point to cover. And I think it's, I'll, I'll reference your article that you kindly wrote for Sportsmith, which has done very well. So clearly this is a point that people want more information on and it's data visualization. And I think if we can keep it to a couple of minutes, that'd be great and just get the, I hate to say it, the hot takes, <laughs> but um, your principles when it comes to, data visualization i know you outlined some a lot in the in the article itself but wh what do you live by when it comes to data visualizations and how do you evaluate whether that's been successful or not few minutes <laughs> few minutes i'll try and keep it as brief as i can um i think taking care in what you're doing like taking pride in it is, is one of the the overarching things like you're using this again as one end of the data pipeline um, so 
your ability to communicate all the backend work in terms of like collecting, aggregating, analyzing, building the thing, all ends up coming down to your ability to communicate that. So taking pride in that and just realizing you're hoping that you can convey a message effectively to the end user. They're more likely to look if it looks nice. That's just the reality. Like you, it, they just, they're more likely to look longer and the longer they look, the hopefully more likely they are to take on the information that you're trying to convey. So there's this base level where you have to reach before someone's goes. I think I said in the article, if not, it's been in our conversations, like it's, it's efficiently beautiful. So you, you have to, we've described our structure. So the number of dashboards or reports or things we have to deliver is, is pretty high. So if we spend every last minute kind of fine tuning to the nth degree, like we will run out of time in the day to do that. So, um, that gets into just having templates in place. So having color schemes, having general font recommendations, having these general templates for how we build um, gets you 80% of the way there. It takes no extra time to use the default ggplot, whatever, or Tableau out of the box. It takes a little bit of upfront work to build templates that you can build on that gets you 80% of the way. And then it gets to that, like, at the right time, hey, this visual should be fine-tuned and you can take that any extra 20%. Um, and then I think... The other principle that I hope we all continue going with, and this is like when I write an article like that, the imposter syndrome is real, the note at the end of the article. Like I think the biggest principle I try and live by is constantly learning. I think John Poley would love to say, and the joke around here is I'm not even the best data viz person in the room I'm in. So like Luke Petty arrived and produced a better looking force play dashboard on like week number two of him being there, you know? <laughs> Um, so I hope that I can at least continue to learn and grow and get better. So it's when it's done brilliantly, like, I think we all know what that looks like, you know, like when you look at Cedric Shearer, create a, uh, a plot in ggplot2, or you even see like, I think right now of the inspirational view of like how data can inform and like in this case, it wasn't inspired, but like capture people. If you think about John Murdoch's G, like plots on COVID incidence rates across the world during the pandemic. Like you've never seen so many people interested in like exponential growth rates. You're just able to turn what's this global pandemic and a ton of information into a really digestible form to talk about whatever it be, like cases or deaths or increase in death, like all those things. And it's done in a way that just like captures people and helps them to understand what's going on. And then from like the beautiful side, we we published a, a preprint on this this abstract thing I called it. It's a lot of conversations that Dave and I had at USOC. Like, well done data visualization can be such a great communication medium, and science often suffers from like a knowledge translation problem in some instances. So, can we capture that? So, we tried to take a data set and communicate it in a in a visualization. So, I had a phone call with Lisa Trescott. She won IronViz, which is like Tableau's data visualization contest, which is a sight to behold. I was at uh, New Orleans, so there's like 10,000 data science, data analysts, data viz people in a room, and people get 20 minutes to build their best looking visual. And the stuff that people can build in 20 minutes is absolutely fascinating. So Lisa actually won Iron Viz. I reached out and said, I'm trying to develop it. Can we turn a research abstract research paper into a really nice viz? Um, so we published this using player maker data that was publicly available. Steve Barrett, um, Chris Tallison, they had this publicly available data set. We took it and we created a Tableau Viz. And you can see 
you take one look at it and you'll probably say there's no way Johan actually produced this. So I had to, like, as I did a very small part, Lisa did a lot of the heavy lifting. You'd see how beautiful it is. So it's like, as a principal, I hope I, our team and people that are in this space can be liberated to say, look, it's another one of those moving targets. You're never going to be arrived and say like, I am now like the perfected data viz artist. Like there's so many examples of people doing it well, so many different ways to do it well that you can continue to learn and evolve and then think what looks, what's perfect in one instance for one user is going to be different than another. And I'll kind of end on that. Like it goes back to that idea of like a video can be more effective than the best pristine Tableau dashboard that's as interactive and as sophisticated or simple as you want, because it comes down to, can you take the information on board and change the decision you're making for a, a player, for a coach, for a different practitioner? Sometimes it's, it's literally a, a video and say, do this more, do this less, do this differently, or a picture of a pitch and say, we want you to be here rather than, Hey, here's this trend line over time. That's contextualized to the other athletes. So I'll end there. I'm missing principles, contextualize the data, um, like be honest with your reporting. There's a lot there, but you told me to keep it brief and I'm already over. So I'm going to stop with, with that. That's fine. That's, that's loads of good, loads of good stuff there. And I think people can, people can read the article and I'll link it in the show notes and on iTunes and Spotify and YouTube, all that kind of stuff, wherever people are listening. Uh, so people can have a little look and, and dive into it. But Johan, we've been on the phone for an hour and 25 minutes an hour and 10 has been recorded. So I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you getting up early. And is the is that big coffee gone? That big coffee's gone, hasn't the it? The coffee's long gone. Time ago, I've, moved, it? I've moved to the water. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. But last but not least, where can people get to know more about you? Where can pe- people keep up to date with projects you got going on, research gay, all that kind of stuff? Um... You'll probably be sadly disappointed if you follow me on social media because something will come out once every six months or something along those lines. Um, yeah, I guess there's there's probably the question on the on the academic space, like the research gate or the whatever the the Google scholars or whatever the people want to see. Like if I if I am fortunate enough to push out a publication, then those are going to be the avenues to find them um, in the applied space. If I say anything publicly, it's probably on Twitter. Um, but again, it's probably with disappointing frequency, um, that I say anything, but also like if you, if people really want to connect, like I'm, I'm happy to have a chat, always happy to, to hop on a call or send some, some messages. So if that be a direct message on Twitter, or do the LinkedIn thing or whatever, like it's, it's always fun to connect with people in this space. So, um, those are all options and avenues. Sweet. Right. I'm going to finally let you go and get on with some work. But uh, really appreciate your time. It's great to have finally have a chat and great to get you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. I'll speak soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Rob. Cheers, Johan. Thank you. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in to episode 415 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Really appreciate you tuning in. Hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. Big thanks to Johan for giving up his time. Very busy guy, getting into the office early so it fits in with um, with everyone's kids' bedtimes and all that kind of thing. So really appreciate his time. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave, Satanta College and Hytro for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.